So 2019 has crashed in on us. We are emerging from the post-Christmas weight gain. You can still see my tummy. Oh, that's not good. Celery has become a new tasty snack that's forgotten other times of the year. Fruit, nuts, health. Running is back in. Not for me, but for other people. <laughs> I don't generally like January and February because the weather's miserable. There's not a lot of partying to be had. But I do love the chance to reset, to start again. It feels like a, a moment, doesn't it, where you're like, and uh, myself and Jen and some of our friends, we look back to the year before. We do a bit of a, how was the year before, a bit of a reflection. And uh, we begin to write down some things that we'd love to see in the next year. And so it's interesting this year that we reflected back because we wrote them all down, stored them. It's like, what did we actually do of the things that we wanted to do last year? It's like a bucket, you know, some of them are emotional, some of them are spiritual, physical, those different things. And so it's just a brilliant chance to go, okay, what is it that I want to put into my life in this next year? Now, we are also starting a new series for the next four weeks, and it's called, should, there's a snazzy flyer that might come up behind me. Yeah, maybe not. No, Okay. The truth, Jesus in a post-truth culture. Shabba, longest title ever. Feel, I've got no idea what it's about, but I think it sounds great. And we are going to be based in John's gospel over the next four weeks. Now, some of you will recognize the name Emil Rattleband, and others of you won't. <laughs> It's a strong name, isn't it? Recently, he went to the courts to try and change his age from 69 to 49. I can't decide whether he's an, a legend or an idiot. Um, jury's still out. And the reason that he wanted to change his age makes me laugh even more was because he wanted to change his age on Tinder in order to get more dates. So... So there's part of you that's like, that's just so wrong. Anyway, it's a funny old world. But his rationale was that age is just a number, and he feels 49. So why can't he say that he's 49? So can he change his birth certificate? And, and, then, and then one of the pieces that he uses, he said, well, my doctors say that my body seems younger than it actually is. And the funny thing was I looked at him, and I was like, really? Um, <laughs> And I don't mean that nastily, but anyway, be careful, James, you're going to get in trouble. So, in 2016, in November 2016, the Oxford Dictionary announced their word of the year, and it was post-truth. And some of you all know what that means, but a little definition for you. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. I thought that was going to come up, but maybe not. Um, there we go. But, uh, yeah. Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> the accompanying press release 
further explained that rather than simply referring to the time after a specified situation or event, as in post-war or post-match or post-something, the prefix in post-truth has a meaning more like belonging to a time in which the specified concept has become unimportant or irrelevant. So a post-truth world, then, is not one in which truth has ceased to exist. It is one in which it no longer matters. Fascinating, isn't it? When you stop and think about that. It's like, oh, okay, so what does that mean? So the political headlines of 2016 catalyzed the selection of post-truth, including Brexit vote in the UK. Not going to dwell on that. The presidential election in the US, and I'm also not going to dwell on that. But commentators on both campaigns used the term with new frequency as they attempted to explain events that surprised them. Fake news. In the aftermath of the presidential election in the US came an outcry over fake news, especially in the use on social media platforms. And in hindsight, it seems kind of inevitable when you stop and think about it. When cont content producers are incentivized to prioritize clicks over quality. So in some senses, it's like, if a click you get paid for, you are going to put something inflammatory in order to get somebody to click on your content, aren't you? So that is what is driving everything. If I can get a click, I can get paid. So then you come up with the most ridiculous titles and people click on it, and so it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle. Truth suffers. So how do we know what's true? Does it even matter? And I don't know about you, but I can feel something has changed in our culture. Something's changed, hasn't it? In the last five years... And it's quite difficult to pinpoint. It's like one of those things that you're like, something's changed, but I can't quite put my finger on exactly what it is that's changed. People are thinking differently and acting differently. So what is it? And kind of a, an analogy would be, it's almost like tectonic plates are shifting in, in terms of people's worldview. That's what's happening. And in order to speak into the culture as Christians, we do have to try and understand it. We're not so removed from it that we just look on and go, oh, that's going, because this is genuinely what people are thinking and feeling and behaving and acting. This is real life going on. Behind people's actions are their worldview, what they really think matters. And so what is it that they're taking in? What are they watching and being formed by and shaped by? What is the grid through which so many people are looking at life? Because that is what is fundamentally shifting. I'm indebted to a guy called Mark Sayers for some of his thinking. He's a pastor in Australia and a brilliant cultural commentator. And so I'm indebted to some of his thinking on this. But we know that the rise of technology has fundamentally changed our world. That's nothing new. The way the that we work, the way that we socialize, the way we live, the way that we, that we think, the way that we interact... Screens are feeding our brains subconsciously all of the time. All of the time. And there is an underlying narrative to everything that we're watching. But so, and I think the danger is that we can be a little bit naive about what's going on. And this is not me being down on the internet. I think technology is a wonderful gift. And I think there are many, many amazing things. So do not hear me when I'm like, just trying to press it down. I'm not. I'm just trying to say we need to not be naive about some of the messages that are being fed and what it is that's coming through. Technology has and is changing everything. 
people's worldviews are changing. It used to be predominantly a Christian worldview within Wales, within the United Kingdom. With other faiths, we would have had Jewish, Muslims, and Buddhist thought, a number of atheists and agnostics. But it was a predominantly Christian thinking and formed nation. Over the last decade, we have seen the rise and perhaps slight fall of new atheism. Because what happened was, you know, this Dawkins came out with the God delusion and all of this. There's a whole load of thinking and Christopher Hitchens. There were a number of books that came out at that time. Suddenly it was like, bang, straight into the, the mainstream. And then after a while, people realized that actually they were just quite angry. And so people kind of started to go, oh, do you know what? I kind of want to disassociate myself from that because that's not who we are. And so new atheism came and then kind of, it's still there a little bit. Dawkins just got angry. But that is the logical extension of where he would get to with his thinking. And we are living in what I and many others would call a post-Christian nation. This is very different to a pre-Christian nation. And so here's just um, a little quote that I think is quite helpful from Mark Sayers. He says this, Within the church in the West, it's almost universally acknowledged that we live in a post-Christian culture. However, it is crucial that we understand what we mean by post-Christian. Post-Christianity is not pre-Christianity. Rather, post-Christianity attempts to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting upon its fruit. Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith, faith whilst gutting it of the costs, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom whilst defending the reign of the individual will. Post-Christianity is Christianity emptied of its content. I don't know about you, but I'm like, I think that's true. So to get to the heart of the post-Christian context, we have to understand how we got here. How has the ground shifted? Sometime in the night, a revolution occurred. And we can feel that it's changed but it's difficult to pinpoint what, so what is it? Now this new power that is out there in society swirls around a small yet widely held set of beliefs. And so I just wanted to go through a few of them. Sorry, this is a little bit academic as we're getting started, but I think sometimes it's just important to give a little bit of a cultural narrative, and this is where we're at right now. I am not saying that everything I am saying is the exact truth on culture right now. I'm just saying, when I read this stuff, it resonated with me, and I went, I think there's something in here. <laughs> Pick through it for yourself. So number one, it says this. The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. I think we could probably agree on that. Number two, traditions, religions, receive wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped deconstructed or destroyed. Number three, the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology in particular, the internet, will motor this progression towards utopia. Number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. Therein is the great irony of what we are living in, the age that we're living in. 
Therefore, and this is fascinating, social justice is less about economic or class equality and more about issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression, and personal autonomy. Can you see what we're coming back to? It's all about the self. Number five, and this is something that would stand against the gospel, humans are inherently good. And it's like, okay. Number six, large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. So what have we seen over the last 10 years? We have seen the dismantling of every institution in our society. And I'm not, I'm not commenting on that. I'm just saying that's true. The banks went down. You know, all of these things. The church has had an incredible, you know, it's seen as an institution. Many of these things are just de dismantled. And then number seven, final one, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. Now, what I'm not saying is, all of these things are bad. Some of these things are good. And actually, if you look at our society and our culture, there's been some amazing movements that we've seen, you know, the liberation of, of women and women's rights. I think that's great. You know, we would 100% be behind that. Um, that's fantastic. It's just sometimes when it moves into something else um, that we need to be careful. And what's really interesting is that these beliefs have not so much been argued as assumed. So this isn't, this isn't a conversation that's been going on. They are not enforced, rather than they are imbibed. So we do not receive them as intellectual propaganda to be embayed. Instead, they are communicated to us at almost a subconscious level through everything that we watch. Films, series, advertising. So we are, as people, we are bombarded by this narrative goes through absolutely everything that we watch, everything that we imbibe, everything that we take in from society will be feeding you this. This new cultural mood becomes all the more powerful as the good is reduced to mere individual happiness. I don't know about you, but just being around our school, I've heard a number of times it would be, whatever's good for you. You know, so somebody does something ridiculously stupid. Uh, some kind of behavior, they like, I cannot believe that they've just done that. And then will come this barrage of texts that are like, great, it's good for you. You're sitting there going, what? The consequences of this are catastrophic. How can you be possibly, you know, somebody, oh, somebody got divorced and they kind of celebrated it. And then they were celebrating, they were going for a party, a divorce party. I'm like... What? What kind of world have we come to? And what happens is, underlyingly, it seems to justify any behavior, as long as it's good for you. So there is no standard. It's like, if it's good for you, that's great. That's wonderful. So what happens is we can no longer see beyond ourselves to learn from history or even be concerned about the future. And Andrew Keane, who's a media theorist, he says this, the result is an amnesia about everything except the immediate, the instant, the now, and the me. The future is not left to God, but rather a kind of implicit, fuzzy faith that things will simply move to get better. Somehow society will get better and my life will get better. Now, I've just tried to give a really basic snapshot of some of these tectonic plates that I think are moving. And you might need to go away and think about them and chew it for yourself to wrestle with it. Because 
It is so important that we do wrestle with this because this will be the narrative that so many people that we're talking to about life, about faith, this will be the way that they see the world. Into this context that I'm talking about, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ live and thrive and grow and expand? And it's, a, it's an important question that we do not need to be scared of. Because I think, you know, sometimes talking about these things, there can be this overwhelming moment of, oh, we need to be afraid. Do you know what? Over the last 2,000 years since Jesus came to the earth, there have been many tectonic plate shifts within culture. Within, there have been many movements. There's been the Enlightenment. You know, you can go through and be like, the thought, thoughts have changed over time. What doesn't change is the gospel. The gospel has remained the same for 2,000 years. In a world that says that you can believe what you want as long as it's in line with our seven values, in a society that is tolerantly intolerant or intolerantly tolerant, I couldn't quite work out which one it was, so I put both down because I wasn't clever enough. There are some challenges, but there are also, also some incredible opportunities because people are, many people are utterly lost. Utterly lost. If you asked them, they wouldn't know that those are the things that they're perceiving. If you were to challenge their worldview, they'd be like, I, I don't know. I don't really know where it's come from because it hasn't been a thought through process. It's been something that's been imbibed by culture. It's just been taken on by media. I believe that John's gospel is a wonderful, wonderful starting point to begin to address some of this stuff. And we have to start with what God has revealed, that Christianity at its heart, is a revealed faith. So what do I mean by a revealed faith? It revealed means that God has made himself known to humanity. That's what we believe. When, whether it was God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, there was that moment, the burning bush, you know, and who shall I say that you are? You know, and that's Yahweh. God revealed himself through Jesus coming to earth the incarnation, God breaking into this world in this most incredible subversive act where he turned the world on its head and said, you know, rather than coming in powers, that I will die for you, that I will come and live amongst you, that it's Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us, which is the Christmas season that we've just been through. And it starts in the first verse in John's gospel, which many of you might know. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And I remember learning this 20, 20 years ago when I did Greek, and it's actually the one phrase that I've retained from my Greek. In arche ho logos, you know, in the beginning was the word. And this word logos is, is the word in Greek. And, and it's the word from which we get our word logic. Logos, logic. So what does it mean to say Jesus is the logic of God? Well, here's what it is. God has not given us a watertight argument to prove Christianity is true. I believe that he's given us a watertight person and not an abstract argument. A watertight person is the compelling proof that the God of the Bible and Christianity are true. This is not anti-rational when I say that. To say Jesus Christ is a watertight person and that's the compelling proof we, we're given rather than a watertight argument is to say you've got to look at Jesus. So when it's the truth, Jesus in a post-truth culture. What is it that we're looking at? 
We're looking at Jesus. We're looking at the person of Jesus. We're looking at the incarnation. We're looking at Jesus coming to earth. We're looking at his death and resurrection. I don't know about you, but recently I've been reading through John's gospel again, just as I've been preparing. And Jesus is a genius. You know when you're reading parables and you sit there and you look at the quality for somebody to make this up. Like, just make this whole thing up. I'm like, for me, there's kind of this internal consistency of he is who he says he is, but he's an absolute genius. And we have to look at his accounts of the resurrection. His life towers above other lives. He's inexplicable. And if we want to know God, if we want to know that God's real, if we not want to know it personally, it can only happen through the word because that's how people work. You know them through their word. Jesus is the word, the ultimate, clearest revelation of who God is. So the whole point of Christmas that we've just been through is he's the word made flesh, the word made soft, the divine made human. More than that, the word made vulnerable, the word made killable. Jesus came into our world and proclaimed that he was the truth, that truth was found in him, that everything made sense in him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The truth of God, the logic of God. And throughout this Gospel of John, we see this word truth again and again, and it hammers throughout the pages. 1 verse 14, you know, I'm just going to go through a few. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, as I've just talked about. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 424, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. 832, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We believe that there's a freedom in the truth. 14 verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. 1613, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And then 1717, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. So we're confronted by truth. The truth is found in a person. So we have this principle that truth is found in Jesus and can be known. Truth is not found inside of us. It's not like we look inside to find truth, but it's inside of him. That he came to show us the truth, to reveal the truth. And in, in essence, what does all of this mean? It means that our values are not the same as that of culture. It's a long way of saying it. Deep down, we know this but it's becoming increasingly obvious. The values of society are not Christian, but post-Christian. We cannot just, as a community of Jesus followers, try and become more and more relevant. That is not the answer. We have to become more and more authentic. Because what happens is, if you just try and become more and more relevant, you look like culture, Culture is in of itself not inspiring. And therefore people go, well, why would I bother going to church? <laughs> so what happens is, if you just try and become more relevant, the church becomes irrelevant. It just becomes utterly irrelevant because it looks like society is just not a very good version. So what we have to do, as Jesus follows, is we've got to push in to truth and we've got to push into who he says he is. Culture is becoming more and more self-centered. 
It is the quest for self. It is the quest for belonging. It is the quest for identity. But it's in a hole. It's not going anywhere. Because it's like this swirl. Well, I just need to be more like myself. Or well, who am I? How do I define what is me? It's this never-ending self-identification. And so I wanted to give this phrase that is something that I think that we need to become as we move in, is that I think we need to develop a gospel resilience. And Jesus' Jesus king is the starting point. And the great problem is that we as good 21st century Christians of democracy do not like kings. We like the royals who turn up and cut ribbons and do hospital openings and have grand weddings. And we tolerate them now because they have no control over us. We prefer democracy, yet God is still king. His coronation upon the cross shows us that he is the sacrificial servant king of the upside-down kingdom. And when I'm talking about upside-down kingdom, what do I mean is that he inverted everything on its head of the way that we think he would come. He came the opposite way. He came in humility. He came in weakness. He came as a baby. The meek shall inherit the earth. The poor. You know, you go through all of these things. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. N.T. Wright notes in his book, How God Became King, that even among good Christians, our anti-royal democratic heritage makes the idea of living under a king hard to stomach. It's like, oh, or queen. Often as believers, we wish for the kingdom, but do not want to acknowledge the authority of the king. For at the heart of kingship is the concept of authority. Authority is the surrendering of autonomy, absolute freedom and free choice to somebody else. So what happens when we come to Jesus? In coming to Jesus, we declare I am not in charge. He is. He is king. He gets to choose. He knows best for my life. In him is my identity. In him is my authority. In him is my purpose. It is absolutely at odds with the world. Gospel resilience means that our worldview is shaped by the scriptures, by the person of Jesus and not our culture. We have to be more and more aware of what we are being shaped by. That would be one of the things that I would want us to hear. What Kool-Aid it is that we're drinking every day. God has loads to say about who we are. Our identity, the authority that we carry in his name, the way that we're to live in this world, what wisdom looks like, what marriage looks like, what community looks like, how we should speak to one another, how we're to forgive that this world isn't the end, that we're created for intimacy with him, that we're in need of rescue from our sin and our mess, that we are loved beyond measure, that he's desperate for us to come home, that the world is lost without him. This is the story that we live under. It's a beautiful, beautiful story of redemption, of restoration, of the king coming in power. This is our story, and we need to never forget it. There's a little passage in John 17 that will come in later in the series. But I just wanted to read it because it gives, when I'm talking about gospel resilience, it helps it make sense. It says this, verses 14 to 18 of John 17. I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them By the truth, your word is truth. As I've sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. 
The message says it this way, I gave them your word. The godless world hated them because of it, because they didn't join the world's ways. Just as I didn't join the world's ways, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you guard them from the evil one. They are no more defined by the world than I am defined by the world. At the heart of this passage, I believe, is it's just saying we're not to be defined by the world. We have our orders, we have what the king has said, and we need to follow what he says. We need to be resilient because our story is not the same as that of the world. As a people, we are centered around the person of Jesus and the truth found in him. That's why we, why do we come here week in, week out? We come because the person of Jesus sits at the center. Otherwise, we might as well go to David Lloyd. It's much nicer. It's beautiful. I can't afford it, but it's beautiful. They've got all these running machines that I don't want to go on. But We come here week in, week out. That's why we get into small groups, to sharpen one another in our faith. That's why we're disciples of Jesus. We're apprentices. We're wanting to look more like him. The danger is we live in a consumer society. And it says these things. We want to consume without taking responsibility. We want to belong without building community. We want to try without having to buy in. Gospel resilience looks nothing like this. That is the antithesis of what gospel resilience looks like. Why? Because we're serving the king and we're loving his bride, the church. Because we need one another. We absolutely need one another. We need deep roots. And this is the image that I want to leave you with as, as I finish. A church is a could be called a tree as well and hopefully a church would have deep roots but each one of us is also a tree in Psalm 1 it talks about being a tree planted by streams of living water that you know it would bear fruit and in season and out so we have have this picture and my question to you as you start the new year is this what kind of roots do you have what kind of tree survives when the wind gets up when the storm comes it's a tree that has deep roots how do you build deep roots? Two or three really simple things. The first is that we have to be a people of the book. This is it. This is our instruction manual because it points to Jesus. It's not the end in itself. What does it do? It reveals Jesus, who is the truth. So we've got to be a people of the book because otherwise we will swim in culture's narrative story. It's a different story. We have to keep taking in the story of who God says we are because it's against what culture's saying. So if we do not live in this, we will live in another story. And the second is that we need each other. The world is changing, the tectonic plates are shifting. The church exists because it's the people of God who stand together, who love one another, who pray for one another, who seek the shalom of God, the peace, prosperity, wholeness of the Lord, that we, that we reach this city together, that we are, we are talking a different story. And it's the story of the king. It's not a self-story about me. It's his story. And we need to be a people who tell his story. Because that's what the truth looks like.